You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today, I'm with Joel Griffith, who is using Node and Docker to build a service that lets you do browser automation. Joel, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Very happy to be on and talk. Very happy to have you on. So do you want to kick things off by introducing yourself and letting people know a little bit more about your service? Yeah. So again, Joel Griffith, run Browserless.io. It's a headless automation platform you can think of it as. Um, originally built it just because as a software developer myself, always had troubles with running tests, Selenium, anything you can think of pretty much with you do with the web browser that you as a user would obviously use and you know trying to automate all those things so tests are the big one um so there's obviously big big players in that space but um i was actually more interested in using it for like scraping sites that didn't have an api or didn't have you know semantic html when you go to their pages so you need to have a web browser run interpolate a bunch of javascript and then you finally get some data so that's kind of what got me you know into this is <laughs> just trying to build a tool for myself to use and that wasn't even originally the product I was going to build. And it just, you know, after working on it for a little bit, I was like, wow, I think this might benefit a lot more people out there than just myself. So, yeah, that was about three years ago. And uh, here I am today with it still still running pretty strong, I'd say. Nice. Yeah, I love to hear stories where it's like you scratch your own itch and that becomes the SaaS or whatever that you build. Like that's what I find at least to be always the best ones because you really use the thing that you're building. Right. And I think you almost end up having to build something twice. So, you know, for me, it was like a wish list app. And I'm sure, you know, most everybody here has dealt with that. And you go on Amazon or some other thing and you plunk in a bunch of stuff you want people to buy for you for a holiday, a birthday, whatever. Um, but it's always in that one site, like Amazon, for instance. And, you know, they have to be on Amazon. They have to see the wish list. Sometimes you will see it and they bought stuff for you. So I was kind of trying to solve that problem across the Internet and just making it easier. That was the original goal. And then just, yeah, ran into a site that didn't let you do any sort of scraping very easily. And then I was like, just happened to be browserless after that. So yeah, always good to like solve your own problems. That's like a very good signal for um, a, a good potential service for sure. Right. I also, I really love the tagline on their site. It, what was it? It was like router automation built for enterprises, loved by developers, I think it was. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, it's funny. That's like, I don't want to say A to B testing a bunch of different taglines, but it's the truth. Like obviously enterprises, big companies, small companies, even, you know, they want something to work and work reliably. But as a user of the product, there's sometimes a disconnect, like something might work. Let's just say Salesforce, for instance, or some other big product, you know, people see level executives buy those, but the people that don't use or the people that use them don't make the buying decision necessarily. And so they have to use this tool that's been purchased for them and kind of suffer with it if they don't like it. You know, that's what the company bought, and so that's what they got to go with. So I was trying to build a product for developers because they're the ones that are going to use it, but, you know, have it be robust enough, usable enough, works well enough that a business can look at it and, you know, take solace in the fact that it'll actually work. Right. So before you mentioned that uh, this has been running for about three years, uh, have you been the sole developer on this project the whole time? Yes, indeed. Mm Mm-hmm. Sole, sole guy behind it and didn't take any VC funding. So it's just been out of my own pocket. Well, about one or two months out of my own pocket before I had enough users that it sort of paid for itself and, you know, was worth its time. Well, wow, that's a very fast turnaround. Like this is not like a business focused podcast, but geez, two months or one month before 
they're kind of profitable is uh, really nice to hear. It must have been something that a lot of developers really wanted. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny because I think most people will build a service and they'll go right out of the gate. They'll lease a bunch of, you know, VMs or they'll get this huge account set up in Amazon or AWS or really whatever. And they just kind of hope that they'll get enough draw from the Internet to make it all worth it. And that's a, you know, if you're a big company and you have money to burn, that's a good strategy, right? You want to be available, people to use it and have a good time with it, tell other people. But it's also a really scary <laughs> investment to make if it's just you by yourself and it's your own money that's going into it. So I, I kind of wanted to flip it on its its head a little bit. So the first like version of the product, which is still like still in flight and still being used by a lot of people today is, you know, like when you sign up at the point of when you sign up is like when I actually go to our cloud provider and say like, hey, I need to lease machines for, for this plan. At the very beginning, there wasn't a lot of load. Obviously, there was no users, and so like my infrastructure costs were like twenty bucks a month, maybe fifty at the most for the you know the database, the load balancers, all that API servers. And then once somebody signed up, bam! I you know my API servers would go. They would lease the instances to support that plan, and they would pull and run all that software, and you know everything was just kind of kind of working then. So yeah, I think as soon as the first user signed up, I was in the black. So it was it was pretty exciting <laughs> to be honest to have it actually like make a little bit of money right out of the gate. Yeah. Also interesting, because it sounds like maybe you're spinning up like a dedicated VPS for every account that gets created on your platform, like at least every paying account or whatever. Yep, that's true. Yep. For dedicated accounts, it's whatever you want. And we take care of like all of the kind of the messy parts of the the launching, the provisioning, the monitoring, kind of all that stuff around actually running a service. Um, we do have a usage base, like pay per second. That came actually quite a bit later, um, and that's all run ran on a shared fleet of you know instances that we monitor that you know we provision, so you don't have to think about that. But at a certain point, it's like it's good to know what you're going to pay at the end of the month for something. And so big companies will want to go to a dedicated plan because it's very easy to budget and allocate spend for that. But for just getting started, like paying per second is obviously the way to go. Right. Yeah, I saw that in your pricing tables. It was like point zero 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 one five per second or something. Yeah, those are, yeah, that's a fun number to try to come up with <laughs> when you're down to the <laughs> second. So, yeah, took a lot of time to get there. Um, there's a lot of weird math. You know, that's a whole nother podcast, <laughs> honestly, is like product pricing and how to do it right and what not to do and all that. Right. So to set the stage for this episode here, uh, are you willing to share like how much traffic you deal with on like a per day or per month basis? Like how many, uh, yeah, I don't know, whatever containers that you spin up to do headless browsing? Yeah, so... Right now, it averages anywhere between like four to five million sessions a day up to, I think at, we had a big peak at one point of like 30 to 50 million a day. So yeah, it's, you know, it's not like the biggest thing out there, but for a one man sort of company, it's a lot of traffic and it's a lot to think about supporting. The funny thing is too, when that peak happened, um, I didn't even know about it. Somebody had signed up and just started rocking right away using a lot of the services and it actually just stood up right against it without me having to like suddenly throw servers into the internet <laughs> to try to support it. So yeah, that was kind of a nice, I did things right <laughs> in the past and it actually paid off in the future. So. Wow. That's amazing. Cause some, some person out there is like, you know what? I need 20 million browsers right now. And then boom, the whole entire platform handled it. Yeah. And that's, that's a scary one. And I, that's a question I've been actually been asked a few different times is like, Hey, what, what would happen if somebody wanted to double your throughput overnight and on you know now i can say eh, it actually happened you know that that did happen at one point and as long as you know you kind of over provision which is you know something that not a lot of people like to hear but if you kind of like buffer a little bit of space so you have a little bit of headroom then it's uh 
it's totally doable, you know. Um, and a lot of like open source tech out there makes it really easy to do. Yeah, I'm super excited to get into the deployment aspect. But before we get there, I would like to talk a little bit more about like the dev side. So do you want to go over your motivation for choosing Node? Yeah, so a lot of being an indie hacker is making choices about the technologies that you use that you are most effective in. So kind of contrary to the, you know, use the best tool for the job, it's almost use the best tool that you know how to use in a way because you're going to be more effective with it. So yeah, so I was originally a front-end engineer for quite some time, got into Node.js. I remember Node was like 0.6 or 0.8 in their release cycle when I was like into it. And obviously Node.js, everybody's hopefully heard of it. It's, you know, JavaScript on a backend server. So it lets you write code in Node that does backend-y things. So that's kind of where I got started with it. Node is really great for evented systems. So responding to events, uh, kind of handling one-off tasks or delegating those tasks to other things. And so that just, it was, it was, it just happened to be a great fit for a browserless, but at the same time, it was something I, I knew really well and had written quite a different bunch of different tools in. And a lot of the core infrastructure in browserless runs off of WebSockets. So when you connect to the service with like Puppeteer or some other API that does that, it all goes through a WebSocket connection. And in Node, WebSockets are very native feeling, I would say. They're not, it's not a native library to Node, but it, it feels very Node-ish, like it could be a part of their core API. And so that just happened to be a great fit for Puppeteer and, you know, now Playwright and a couple other different libraries out there that do headless automation. So so that voted really well. Um, me being a JavaScript developer, having done a lot of WebSocket libraries and things in the past, if you dig really far back in my GitHub profile, you can see a an old, old, old project I used to run open source called SickMerge, which would just do like remote file system changes. So like if you have a dev machine in LA, but you're, you know, working locally on a laptop, you can save a file and it, it actually uses WebSocket. So it'll send the Delta of the file change through WebSocket to your like, you know, dev server someplace. And it's really fast. So like rsync, usually there's like a little bit of a handshake in front of it. Then it sends your files over. This kind of maintains that connection, that socket. And so changes are really quick. So that was my first like big WebSocket node project. Um, and that's kind of how I got familiarity with WebSockets, with Node, and then of course now with browserless, those are like really core pieces of the infrastructure. So that's that's kind of how I got, you know, the, the choices picked. It was I was good at it. It fit the problem, just happened to fit the problem well. Um, and it was something I knew I was going to be effective with and, you know, fix problems quickly. Nice. Yeah, I mean, going back all the way to Node point six or something, that's about the time where I started looking into using Node as well. Like that was way back in the day of uh, TJ Holloway, Chuck. Do you remember that name? Oh, yeah. Oh, man. I owe a lot to TJ. <laughs> if it wasn't for TJ, the Node ecosystem wouldn't be where it is today. It just, I mean, for those of you who don't know him, he, he wrote a lot of like the original like web server libraries, standard libraries. So like Commander, which is like a CLI builder tool, he wrote that. Express was his you know, idea as well. So, and those two, I mean, I've used those two so much over the years and yeah, that was really like foundational and just even like how to use node in, in a really nice and elegant way. Like his patterns were something that have, are still going on right now. Yeah. I just remember looking at uh, all of his open source repos and just picking out like best practices and testing strategies. And it was all really top quality stuff. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. He, he wrote a library too, I think for testing, if I remember right. Yeah, Mocha or something like that has been so long. Yeah, yeah, it's been a while now that there's Jest and G's other ones. But yeah, he was a big 
big on the scene. He was really foundational for the time. So going going back to the WebSocket setup, I mean, are, are you using something like Socket.io or Fay or something else? So I actually use a library called HTT Proxy. It doesn't actually do any sort of like socket server client connection. Essentially, the way browserless works, you know, in the core part of it is that it's just a little HTTP server. It has a couple of REST APIs that sort of automate really common things like PDF and screenshot generation. But for the most part, when a, when a connection comes in or you know, a request to connect comes in, it essentially just proxies the WebSocket connection itself into Chromium. So at no point does browserless do any sort of man in the middle or mirroring of WebSocket messages to Chromium. It essentially just manages those inbound connections and where they should go. So the answer is no, I don't, I don't use any of them. Socket.io is definitely something that I'm going to use for a future part of browserless, but it's not something that I use right now and not even the WS module. I think Puppeteer deep, deep down in their internals uses WS to do their WebSocket handling. But yeah, the nice thing is, is I don't really have to do much there. So it just proxies those requests into Chrome. Nice. So now going back to uh, a little bit of TJ stuff, you mentioned Express. Is Express powering the web server of, of your service or no? Yep. So the little, when a customer, even going back further now, when a customer signs up, I essentially launch VMs for them, run these Docker images for them. And inside of those Docker images, there's, a, there's its own REST API. Um, and that is, most of them are Express. There's a few that aren't, that have some really weird like behaviors. So there's a function API that we have where you can kind of arbitrarily send node scripts to run. So that's really good for people that maybe aren't using node, but want to have like really fine grain control on how they control their browsers. So they can send us a script to run ad hoc and we execute it for them. And that goes through, you know, just nodes, HTTP server capabilities, because there's a lot of like weird, like processes that we have to stand up to get that working properly in like a secure fashion. But the other ones definitely do. So PDF generation, there's a you know router for that in Express that handles that, screenshots too. And we also do some validation in Joy. So when somebody posts a request, obviously we you know take a look at that request, make sure it's right content headers, and then actually look at the nature of the request to make sure it's you know validated properly so we can run it. Okay. So do you have anything maybe in your package JSON file, like libraries that you've used that really helped you pull all the stuff together, like besides Express and well, maybe you can get into some of the libraries that you chose for PDF and screenshots. Yeah, I mean, there is a really good library that we use for doing, you know, for the function API, but for actually all the APIs that sort of runs it in its own sub virtual machine. So Node has a VM module that lets you try to like sandbox things a little bit further so that, you know, people aren't arbitrarily reading through your file system and stuff like that. I think it's called VM2. That's a really foundational one for us. And I think definitely people should, should take a look at that because security is a really big part of, you know, running a software as a service. Um, and so I'd be remiss not to mention that that's a, a huge one. And so it takes care of all like the sandboxing you can like whitelist modules that people can use in their scripts to run. So that's probably one of our like more bigger, scarier dependencies, I'd say than some of the other ones. Um, some of the other ones are you know obviously nice to have express does a lot for me that I don't have to do manually, but the VM two module does a lot of weightlifting for us. Interesting. Yeah, because I was thinking like if every single instance that gets spun up is in its own Docker container, is that not enough isolation? It is for, you know, dedicated accounts, right? Because you're obviously doing it with a you want and those machines are specifically for you. So you can, you know, do whatever you want. But for usage base, especially, it's really 
kind of scary <laughs> to run arbitrary scripts. And so you get to the, like go to the nth degree and further to make sure that things aren't escaping their containment. So yeah, VM2 is, is the layer that handles that for us. Um, definitely go check it out, all you out there that are listening to this, because I think it's a very powerful module if you're worried about like, you know, remote code execution. Uh, the step further that we're going to go pretty soon is, so like on our usage-based cluster, we have a bunch of Docker instances running, and those instances are up for months, years at a time, potentially. Um, and we're going to move to a more quote-unquote ephemeral style of management. So anytime a request comes in, we fire up a container, run it, kind of similar to how Kubernetes would do it, you can think. Once that session is done, we you know clean it up, kill that container. So like even the file system for just that request is unique to that request. So you can do whatever you want with it. It's just a temporary setup and then it's gone. So that's coming in the future. Nice. So now for those dedicated accounts, I mean, I, I can't visualize what your product would do at the web dashboard level, but like, do you have like multi-tenancy set up or no? Like a subdomain for every user who creates an account and they can go there and, and look at things? So it's not subdomain based, but it's definitely like API token based. So when our load balancer sees a request come in, obviously tears apart the URL of that request, it'll see your token and it has a configuration inside of itself that says, okay, that API token belongs to these instances and it'll forward your request to that instance. For the dashboard side of it, our API server has that same information and it can do a whole bunch of really cool things like stuff that <laughs> there's a bunch of really even cooler things I want to get to and build eventually. But like, for instance, you can have sessions running in production and go to our account page, load those sessions and like watch them as they run with dev tools open. So you can have headless automation running. And if something is getting stuck at some point or you just want to, you know, you're just curious and want to peek around and see what's going on. You can actually go and look at the sessions as they're running, look at dev tools and see what the requests are being made and, and kind of like debug in production as it were <laughs> almost. Wow. Yeah, that sounds really slick. Yeah, that was like, again, something I wanted didn't really exist, but it'd be cool to like have that information because, you know, most of the products out there are just videos and, you know, maybe like some sort of debug asset where like, okay, here's a HAR file of all of the stuff that's been going on. But like being in dev tools, setting breakpoints, like what you would do as a front end developer when you're building something, getting it close to that as possible is really important. And so Again, nobody was really doing it at the time. I don't think anybody even still is right now doing that kind of a thing. But yeah, dedicated accounts, you can definitely do that. And I, when people email me with trouble with their scripts or having troubles, it's actually the first thing I go to. I go to our own debugger and use it to figure out what the heck's going on. Yeah, I guess that's one of the perks of developing your own SaaS app instead of being like, oh, I wish I had that feature. It's like, oh, well, wait, I can add that. Yeah, and it's, I don't know, that's something that gets me going. That what inspires me is like, you know, somebody has a problem and they want to fix it and like maybe that tool doesn't exist but like shoot i wrote the whole i wrote the whole platform i better know how to like add something to debug or see what's going on yeah so developer sole founders are <laughs> the way to go in my opinion as as one because you can just build your own tools you can build your own solutions you know it's like a, a very very cool side part of it but you know not everybody can do that so um yeah you kind of got to roll with the punches and do what you're good at Right. So this setup here, like with the web dashboard and I guess the API server to accept like custom scripts to be run, is this all like one monolithic app or do you have it broken up into a couple of different services? Yeah, there's essentially three different parts of it. There's the, you know, the Docker containers, which we've 
talked about a little bit. Those are just out there crunching through work. We call them workers just because that's, you know, that's all they do. They, they work through a workload. There's two, two other pieces to that too, as well. There's sorry, three, there's three more pieces to that. The first is, you know, we have a load balancer. That load balancer is mostly NGINX based. It also does Lua scripts too, because NGINX has some limitations and how you can like tear apart and dynamically reroute a request. So we use Lua to sort of help us tease out parts of a request that NGINX can't handle. So there's NGINX, Lua. There's also a node sidecar, or what I call a little sidecar as well, that you know essentially connects to our REST APIs anytime like something changes it updates nginx to let it know that you know hey something there's a new user there's you know new machines for this user or whatever and it you know dynamically updates nginx tests it make sure the config is valid and then reloads nginx which is zero downtime so that's one piece that's like our load balancer the second piece is we do have um you know like api servers those run mostly just a graphql instance and that handles anything from account setup to you know account management to talking to our load balancers to making sure that they're up to date with the latest configuration all like the boring mechanics of it and then the third and final piece is our database obviously everybody's got to have a database so it surprisingly most of our metadata and like account information can be stored in stripe so i like (laughs) probably abuse that that they have it so stripe if, if you're not familiar stripe is like a payment provider platform and you can set up plans, customers, all that stuff. But they all, all of these like objects in their system have this like, I don't want to say dumping ground, but it's like this big open thing called metadata. Um, and so you can add just arbitrary key value pairs to any anything in their system. So our API server uses that a lot. So it'll you know create a customer. It'll add information about that customer. Obviously, like their email address is the biggest one. But just the nature of their deployment, the size, where it's located, how many, all that's saved in Stripe. So our actual own database is just a really small Redis instance. And that just pretty much takes care of authorization and like a little bit of like account management, but not very much. So that's all pretty small and not really a scary part. Like most most companies, like their database is like their biggest part of their platform. If that goes down, everything goes down, right? Nothing can function. But if our Redis instance would go down, the worst thing that would happen is people wouldn't be able to log into their accounts or you know see what's going on. But all of their live sessions would still continue to flow through just properly. And similar, you know, if our API servers went down, all of the live stuff would still continue to run even without those API servers. So I guess it's kind of a microservice, you could say. It's not really a microservice like to the nth degree, but yeah, it's everything's broken up. It's not a huge monolith. There's definitely separate repositories for all these things. So I guess it does kind of fit the characteristic of a microservice more. Okay. Yeah, that sounds like a, a really interesting setup. Like I never created an account on your platform, but where would my, let's say, password be stored in this case? Is that also in Redis or no? Yep. It's stored in Redis. It's, you know, hashed to the moon and back, one way hashed. Um, actually, I'm, again, back to the security thing, a little bit of a nervous Nelly when it comes to security. So like everything is encrypted, firewalled, only certain things can talk to it. Even like the Redis instance is password protected, but it's also firewalled also on a local network only. So, but then yeah, everything else is encrypted. So the nice thing is it's just your password. If, you know, worst case scenario, somebody were to happen to get access to the database that shouldn't like 
they're just going to get a bunch of encrypted one-way junk so not really useful um but yeah that's essentially where it'd be stored all of the metadata about your account like again size where it's located how many that all gets put into stripe so i don't even have to you know think too much about that interesting so if i were to have an account and let's say i don't know what the limitations are but yeah i want to spin up you know an instance of this are you making an api call to stripe then to get the amount of I guess, browser instances I can spin up or whatever? Like, are you making an API call for every time a customer wants to do something? Yeah, I mean, when you sign up, yeah, the first thing is I, you know, obviously you put in your payment information, we take that to Stripe, and we, you know, attempt to charge for the account that you set up. That charge runs, and if it succeeds, awesome. Then we go to the next process of, like, let's spin up all that infrastructure that you just paid for. If it doesn't, obviously nothing else happens, and try again, or <laughs> try a different card, or, you know, whatever, size down the plan. Um, but yeah, Stripe is kind of a gateway in, in its, uh, of its own. So like if it doesn't go through Stripe, nothing happens. But if it goes through Stripe, then, you know, based on what you had selected in the plan, we know exactly what to spin up and you're off and running to the races. It takes a couple minutes, five minutes at the worst to get everything set up. So nice. Now, how would that work though with the, uh, the other plan that's pay as you go? Like from what I remember, at least you can't, what was it like a 50 cent minimum for Stripe? Like what would happen if I just wanted to charge like less than a penny's worth of uh, data? Yeah. So that one, we went the route of doing um, like a credit system. So you would have to put down at least 10 bucks. So you buy $10 worth of credit at a time. That gets translated obviously in our service to seconds. So if you buy $10 worth of credits, I think it works out to be about 66,000 seconds or something of that nature, big number. Um, And then you know, as you're consuming using the service, those credits dwindle over time. Um, and then once it gets down to a certain point, we obviously like fire you an email or two saying like, hey, you're you're about ready to run out of, out of time on the service. You might want to think about reloading back up. So, yeah, but again, that was kind of a decision that was, you know, a lot of my own history and context. So like, you know, I can't have somebody just sign up and totally abuse the platform, spend, you know, thousands of dollars and then at the end of the month say, hey, guess what? You know, I don't have any money at all. I just needed to run a couple million jobs and and go off to the races. But see ya. <laughs> so hmm. I kind of put the cart in front of the horse <laughs> a little bit in that perspective. Like the money has to be there when you sign up. And then once it's there and things go through, then obviously everything else afterwards happens on our end to like provision that plan. So yeah, that's kind of how we, you know, made it work for our like financial you know, needs. Um, but again, if people are VC funded or have money to burn, like, you know, they probably have an account team that can chase those down in a big legal department. To, you know, like if you spend thousands of dollars in a month and, you know, it's worth your time, you can get that money back. But yeah, for me, just being a solo dev at this point, like it's not something I want to spend my time doing. So. Right. No, that's a really great way to go about it, right? It makes total sense for that type of business model. As for the Redis setup, though, normally when you think Redis, you think like in-memory data store. Uh, how do you have that thing configured to write to disk in a way where you can be confident that, you know, you might not lose someone's uh, account if they just created it, like their, you know, username and password? Yeah, I mean, for instance, if somebody did sign up and, you know, that was in-memory, Redis hadn't persisted to disk in that point in time, obviously all that information is still in Stripe. Not their password, but the rest of the stuff is in Stripe. So the worst thing that could happen in that case is that, you know, their account might have disappeared. They just reach out to support me and say, hey, like I just signed up. I'll obviously know because I see everybody that signs up for the service. Just signed up and now I can't log in. Something's wrong, blah, blah, blah. 
okay, cool. I can, with the information that's in Stripe and with their email address, I can easily reset that account back up. You know, it's manual at this point, but obviously it could be made programmatic. Send them a reset password email, restart their account, and they're, you know, they're back in a matter of minutes. Um, but further than that, like we obviously have backups every day. There's two or three, I think it's up to three now, different types of backups. So obviously for those who haven't used Redis, Redis does write to disk when you're in uh, like RDB mode. So there's like two ways you can configure Redis to run. You can have it as like a append only file where it just essentially keeps a log of the changes that have happened and kind of like a Git. You can think of it as like Git almost like it's just a, a change over time kind of setup. Um, I'm probably mischaracterizing that a ton, but conceptually that's how it works. I don't have that set up because it's very, if you like your data consistency needs to be there full stop, that's the best way to go. But it really is hard to back up because, you know, you have essentially a log of changes to get it back to where you work can be kind of tricky. So I have Redis configured, think about every five minutes or so to persist to disk. And then once it persists to disk, then we have multiple things, cron on some machines, automated things on the Redis instance to save that file. So that gets cached three or four different places. But on top of that, you know, we use DigitalOcean as our platform. DigitalOcean obviously has backups too. So there's backups configured for that. There's even a fallback instance that's ready to go in case the main one goes down. So yeah, you kind (laughs) of almost like in the security aspect of it, you kind of have to be a little bit of a, you know, I don't want to say conspiracy theorist, but like you kind of have to entertain a lot of scenarios when how things can fail. Obviously your Redis instance can go down, but we have, you know, so many ways to get it back. It's, I don't, I don't lose soup anymore about it at night. Right. Yeah. That's a really great analogy about security. Cause it's, it's all about like the layers of the onion, not just so much like you do this or that and that's it. There's like 10 things you can do. Right. And I think that's actually a pretty good, like conceptual way to think about it is like, there's, there's layers to the strategy, right? Like you want to have a firewall so that, you know, only certain machines can talk to certain machines and that way you don't get a bad actor in there. But that's just one layer. You have more than that. You know, passwords, logs, all that stuff. It's, you know, it's a pretty complicated thing to like get set up robustly and feel confident about. So yeah, as much as you can. And that doesn't even cover, you know, emails. Like there's a bunch of like DNS entries you need to have or, you know, CNAME entries you need to have just to make sure like your emails are secure and nobody can like hijack or look like you through an email. So it's a big, man, it's a big piece of the puzzle. And it's one that I'm like always, always learning more about even more than other aspects of it. Yeah, for sure. Now, speaking of email, which SaaS provider do you use, if any, to send like transactional emails, like sign up emails, forgotten password, et cetera? Yeah. I mean, that's all done through SendGrid. That was the one that, you know, had a node SDK. And that was, <laughs> that was like the decision point right there. Like, okay, they have a node SDK, they have a dashboard and it, mostly just works. So that's who we went with. Um, we don't really do anything else like marketing email wise. So like SendGrid is just the only one that we have. Um, yeah, so like not even MailChimp or nor others. I, I, I did try MailGun at one point and for some reason I didn't have either things configured properly or something. And I, you know, spent the day on it. And I was like, ah, I can't get this to work. And SendGrid had an SDK. So I'm just going to run with those. Yeah, it's very nice when uh, you work with a, a backend language where you can find those SDKs available. Like for Node, you have the Stripe one as well. Like, yeah, it's, it's so nice. Yeah, and especially if they have types too, because like almost all of our Node stuff is type TypeScript. So even that, like that definitely wins me for sure, because you just get so much time back, you know, in the term 
in the terms of you using that product over the course of the years that you use it, like having TypeScript just like gives you that, that much more, you know, confidence that things are going to work. So do you have most of your backend code written with TypeScript? Yep. Yep. It was, it's kind of funny because it was actually my first really big foray into it. And at the time I think, well, this is three years ago. So TypeScript was, you know, pretty established, but there was still like a potential that flow or some other superset of JavaScript was going to take over. And, you know, I had heard coworkers talk about TypeScript really well. And so I was like, you know, I'm going to write this thing from TypeScript up just because I think, you know, personally, I think this is going to be the winner. Kind of glad <laughs> in, in retrospect, it turned out to be the winner, but it was, you know, obviously a product I wanted to build, but I was like, I kind of want to try TypeScript with this and see how, how it feels. So yeah, everything, everything is written in TypeScript except for the front end. Okay. Maybe we can get into the front end a bit. So you mentioned uh, you do use Preact for that. Do you want to get into the details about that one? Yeah. So at the time that I was writing the front end, we were using React in my day job and React was great. Like the whole concept of how it works and the you know process of using it was amazing. Just like, you know, it's a function that produces static HTML, like that whole thing. I'm like 100% behind like pure functions, et cetera. Um, but there was a lot of like things that didn't come with. So, you know, if you use React, obviously you're going to have to probably use a build system of some kind, which means Webpack and Babel and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And then it's like, oh, great. Now what style system do you want to use? Okay, you need a plugin for that. Oh, awesome. Now that you've got that all set up, you know, you're not getting ranked in search engines because it's a single page application. There's no semantic HTML for a, a crawler out there to, you know, pick up on. All of those things are just like <laughs> problems I did not want to solve again. When that happened, I was like really looking at Preact. So Preact is essentially React, but it's uh, like a, a whole different project. It's the same interface. It's the same process of using it, but it came with everything like ready to go. Like there is a Preact CLI for starting your project. It has, you know, options for doing snapshots of your page to produce static HTML, all of that. So it was kind of like an all-in-one solution. I think the only thing I really changed out of the box was using um, SAS instead of their less, I think was what it originally came out with. I might be wrong on that, but SAS was the one thing I wanted to change. And it was like, I added a plugin to my package JSON and it, and it like picked up. Actually, you know what? I take that back. I didn't even add anything. Like it saw that I was trying to use SAS in one of my files and it actually was smart enough to know to get the right plugin bundle installed to, to support it. So, um, well, yeah. So that's like, <laughs> that's all the good stuff about it is it's really easy to get started and really easy to get going. The problem, the one problem that I kind of have with it right now is some of the open source components out there really like to use certain React APIs and like the more recent versions, like hooks and whatever else. And Preact doesn't necessarily have those. And so like, you'll get this really sweet button component that like has all these cool effects and stuff, but it's like using like an animation API in React that Preact doesn't have in its interfaces. So it's like, well, cred now I can't use this thing because I'm kind of locked into Preact. So um, that's honestly about the only downside. Like the whole static page thing is really great. So like SEO just, just mostly works. Um, yeah, I don't spend very much time having to think about it. It's one dependency versus like the 20 or 30 that you have to continuously update and rechange logs for and et cetera, et cetera. So it really does take a lot of like mental burden off my like DevOps side. Yeah, that's really cool. So I've never used it before. Is this something like when you say it generates static pages, is this something you just run at build time? Like if you're about to deploy a new version of your site and it'll, it'll take all the JavaScript or whatever and just spit out static files that you can serve directly with Nginx. And then you kind of just 
you know, if interactivity needs to happen on the JavaScript side, like making an Ajax call or WebSockets or whatever, then you just like stitch in that into the DOM that already exists for the static page? Yes, mostly mostly that all just works. Like it'll snapshot the page at build time. And so obviously like Ajax calls haven't been made at that point, right? So like it doesn't usually throw a wrench into the build process. Um, and I think I, yeah, it's all done through Netlify. So I don't even have an Nginx instance. Like I push up, you know, master on the front end repo. Uh, Netlify builder knows how to handle all that. And there's just like a little manifest in the root of that project that says, you know, snapshot these pages. And to be honest, I don't even know how it does that. Some by some means, I don't think it's even a headless browser. By some means, it'll load up those pages, snapshot their produced HTML, and it'll serve those as like a static file and then hydrate as the page obviously comes live in a user's browser. Very nice. Yeah, I was like kind of laughing in my mind. Like, imagine if it used browserless somehow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, actually, no, I we do. We have our debugger that has like a little embedded, um, like autocomplete widget, and we scrape the uh, puppeteer docs with browserless to get that information to build the debugger for for browserless so yeah i mean it's it's definitely not outside of the realm of possibilities we could easily move all of that netlify stuff if we needed to and just do it ourselves and use headless browsers to do because obviously we have more than we need yeah for sure now going back to your tech stack i know you mentioned that you do use docker in production to run these uh, containerized browserless instances but do you also use docker in development for your own day-to-day Definitely. And actually, it's funny because just before this podcast, I had to make sure that my Docker system, all my images and my like, you know, cache layers weren't just clobbering my file system. So a little pro tip for anybody out there that's running out of space on their Mac or their SSD that's small, do a Docker system prune every now and then and you will be <laughs> flabbergasted about the amount of gigabytes you get back. But yeah, so like our API servers going back are all Docker um, the core image is written in Docker. I think the only thing that isn't in Docker yet is uh, the load balancer. And that's just because there's some like voodoo scariness I have with Nginx and Docker because you have to deal with HTTPS, right? SSL, that's like a huge part of it. And Docker sometimes containers just have a have a hard time. I know you can mount it as a volume in the final system, but it's really hard to get that working in a way that's you know, zero downtime. And so that's the only place that we don't use Docker yet. And it's not really my personal preference. It's just like, it's a really scary layer to touch and to make big changes in. And as soon as you make those big changes, like you could really (laughs) cause a world of hurt for your user. So that's about the only place that doesn't run Docker yet, but everything else is, you know, runs, runs in Docker for sure. Yeah. It's so funny you mentioned that because in practice, like I, I work a lot with Docker as well. Nginx is the one thing I never containerize. I always run it directly on the host, mainly like the SSL stuff. And I just like the idea of like, you can have your app totally fully Dockerized, but then it's like, well, if you need to, I don't know, maybe bring down Docker to just update it or do something else, like your site just isn't dead to the world. You can still have Nginx load like a maintenance page for five minutes or whatever. Right. Yeah. Because there's that, for Docker, there's that awkward, like, you know, you you have to tear down one container and bring up the other one. So at some point, you know, there's like a cutoff where sessions that are running or still could be running have to run on that machine. And if you just tear it down right away, they're gone. And so you effectively just ruined somebody's workload they're trying to run. So yeah, it's, it's tough, man. Like you can't really, I, I've seen other solutions out there where they like, they pull up another one, they run it on a port and they somehow like swap the ports live when the cutover happens. And I don't know, it just, 
it, it feels like bandage bandages right now. And even though like running Nginx just quote unquote on bare metal it is kind of a a weird feeling when everything else is in Docker, it still is like you know I can reload the whole config zero downtime and not have any problems. So yeah, yeah, Nginx is a total beast mode. It can be running for like two years untouched. You reloaded like a hundred times, like it's still gonna do like a billion requests per millisecond. <laughs> yeah, it's it's absolutely bananas. Like that that technology is uh, it continues to like uh, yeah shock me <laughs> like i thought about rewriting some of the load balancing stuff in node but i'm like oh man all these things that nginx just does out of the box and the scale it achieves out of the box is just uh, it's hard to say no to that so then just to be clear then like is that lewis script that you wrote all of the code necessary to make nginx do everything it needs to do like exclusively within nginx like you don't have anything else modifying like load balancer rules or whatever it's really just for one thing so we support Selenium and Selenium works over HTTP requests. It doesn't work over like a WebSocket. WebSockets are awesome because, you know, they get routed to one machine. That socket stays open. That session gets routed to the same machine. It, it will never really close it, so it's always routed to the right spot. But for Selenium, it's HTTP. So it's like a bunch of get, post, put, delete requests, and they all have to get routed to the same machine. They all have to get routed you know, to the right instance on that machine if you're running, you know, more than one container. So that Lua script is really what does that for us. Like it tears apart the request, you know, sees the token. Okay, like you have this token in the body of your post, which I don't think is something that Nginx, at least not that, not that I'm aware of, can do. And then further than that, like we embed some stuff in the URL for um, Selenium. So like Selenium runs on IDs. So anytime you create a session, you get an ID back we encode a bunch of information in that ID. And so when our API servers see that request come back in, we decode it in Lua, look at it and say, okay, this this request was initiated by this IP address, so we need to forward it to that machine. That's about the only thing that Lua really does for us is it like handles encoding and decoding requests metadata so it can get it to the right place. Okay, and actually that just made me uh, think of something. So if you have most of your app containerized, but Nginx is not, like, what do you do for testing? Like, generally, I guess this is like a two-party question. Like, one, you know, how do you test the Nginx stuff locally? And two, I mean, going back to your Stripe setup before, uh, if a lot of uh, calls require actually calling Stripe's API, what do you do in, in testing mode for that? Do you just mock those out? Yeah, so this is going to be a really great advertisement for Stripe because Stripe has, a, like, the best dev feature, which is, like, dev mode. So you can have a production environment and you can have a developer environment. So... For our piece of infrastructure, there's no difference. It's just like you use a different token and it gets routed to Stripe's dev environment. So like our dev environment for Stripe is roughly the same as our prod environment for Stripe. So, um, you know, a lot of like big changes, I'll obviously manually test. Those all go through live to Stripe's dev environment. And, you know, I can tease out anything that needs to happen. So that's like a huge, huge feature of theirs. And it's like, I actually kind of took it for inspiration for browsers. Like, man, these guys are like really, really good on developer focus and their developer tooling is really, really good because you can just have a whole free environment for, you know, testing these things. And they even give you like fake cards too to test false charges or expired or, you know, whatever. So the good old 42, 42, 42 card. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> Everybody that uses Stripe knows that card number. I just, yeah. So anytime I sign up, I just ping pong back between four and two because it, it works through zip code it works through expiration date and, and you're, you're often running into the races so yeah that's the first part the second question you had with nginx so in dev i actually have a do <laughs> dockerized version of nginx that i can load 
configuration into make sure that config is going to, you know, start obviously and, and work properly. So for testing locally and, you know, automated tests, I actually build a load balancer Docker image that has inside of it, Nginx, Lua, that little node sidecar all running together. So it's pretty close. I mean, obviously there's some differences. It's in Docker. So ports are going to be different and, you know, testing SSL in dev, it's gotten a lot better over the years, but it's still kind of a tricky egg to crack. So, um, but yeah, just use Docker. That's what I've done. Right. So then for SSL locally, do you, do you, do you just use like self-signed certs? Yeah. Usually I'll have some weird hack in my machine with like the Etsy host file to do SSL or, you know, something or on my router, I'll like copy the certs from some other, you know, load balancer or elsewhere, put those on Nginx, change my router to be my local router, not the production router, the local router to route, you know, Crest for this domain to, you know, a local port, have those certs served. And it usually just works. I don't know. It's still not perfect. Obviously it's, it's wonky. It definitely, it's definitely like the, the wart on our production stuff right now is that HTTPS and, you know, backing those up and provisioning those. Cause we also have like load balancers for different locales. So like there's a Chrome US West, a Chrome US East, there's a Chrome in, you know, London subdomains that, you know, people in those areas can get faster, obviously network latencies to use the service. So, but now there's like a problem, right? Cause you have three load balancers. They all have their own HTTPS certs. Like how do you bring that back? You know, if something goes down or how do you, you know, upsize that instance while you have one running in prod. So the HTTPS is, is still a, not quite a solved problem from the dev endpoint, but I think it's gotten better. I really need to like revisit that now because it's been quite some time and I think it, the like ecosystem has progressed quite a bit. Right. And for the prod side, are you using Let's Encrypt to generate these certs or something else? Yep. Let's Encrypt for sure. Cannot recommend those guys enough, man. Like that's a huge, huge thing. And like they even have their own, like, I don't think it's a cron. There's something that automatically just handles all of that for you if you, you know, get it working properly. The one trick to it is, you know, in Nginx to use Lua scripts, you have to use not an Nginx package. It's uh, OpenResty, which embeds the Lua scripts into like the Nginx runtime. So getting that to work with Let's Encrypt is a little bit of a chore, but that's going to be something that you're going to have to solve or use a provider, you know, out of the gate before you even start. So like really figuring out that layer, like when you're new to this and you're building something from scratch, like make sure you have all of that working well before you obviously like post it but yeah definitely using less encrypt for sure okay and that like tricky thing to get set up are you talking about like having the cert bot tool like right to your nginx config file like it won't work with that package no it does it's just that cert bot so like if you look through open resty's documentation like they have a prescribed way of how you want to run it and so by default nginx like has configuration and stuff and like a you know etsy place so it's like pretty idiomatic to see configuration in those files and to find like PID files in certain directories. In OpenResty, they have like a more multi-tenant approach where it's like OpenResty can be running and the things that it is serving can be in several places. So it's usually like scoped to a particular file or directory someplace. And it's not in the same place that Nginx usually is running. So when you bring on CertBot and it starts up, CertBot will like, you know, out of the box, it'll look for where Nginx usually is running or the config or the PID files. And it'll just, 
anytime it tries to renew a cert, it's like, hey, I can't find that, you know, your config for Nginx, so you have to tell me where that is. And so, yeah, I mean, like, it doesn't sound like a big problem, but it's like, you need to find the, you need to tell it where the config file is. You need to tell it where the PID file is. You also need to tell it the command to run to like reload and OpenResty has its own CLI, but they also, I think, Simlink the Nginx <laughs> command. So, and like, <laughs> it's just, it just keeps getting worse. A lot of the providers you use come out of the box with Nginx installed. So you have to remove Nginx install up in resty once open resty is installed it still looks like nginx when you're like in your you know like ps terminal augs you know grep pipe whatever mm-hmm. trying to find it it's nginx there and you're like crap i'm, I'm running open resty how come i'm seeing nginx well it's because nginx is sim linked or aliased for open resty so i don't know i remember that being kind of a maddening thing where it was like i was trying to like get this usable but i mean once you set once you get it running and set you you kind of forget about it which has its pros and cons but yeah, it was a little bit of a, a little bit of a hassle to get that all up and working. Right. Yeah, that sounds about right for Nginx in general. It's like you put in the work to get it right, and then it's like, well, you basically can just do that, use that same copy for like ten other sites, and it works just fine. Right. And there is so much information about it online, which is great, but a lot of it is just really bad. Like how people, you know, dynamically route, like the regex that they use. Like if you just copy it off Stack Overflow. Like maybe it'll be up and running and working, but then if you ever have to go back and figure out something's broken, it's like really hard to tease out like what the heck is going on with this like location match. So yeah, it's a lot of information. Most of it's good. A lot of it's bad. Yeah, for sure. Definitely need to be careful. And by the way, uh, just going back to your Stripe setup before we start talking about deployment stuff, are you using uh, the payment intense API, like all the SCA stuff? No, it's all mostly in their sub- like subscription area. Like everything's a, a plan that's backed by a subscription. So like their payment APIs, I don't use directly like for like one time payments or whatever. Um, I do use like their front end components, obviously to like tokenize cards. So like Stripe has this process where, you know, if you go to browserless and you punch in your credit card information, we actually never see your credit card number that gets like cores called over to Stripe. And they give me back a token, like this long, nasty looking hash of that number, which I obviously can't reverse. It's like a one-way token. And so when I go to make the charge, I just pass that token to them and they know what card to to run. So like, well, the PCI compliance stuff is taken care of on their end. But yeah, no, it's mostly just like subscriptions, subscription objects, and then just some like tokenization in the client side. Okay. And for those subscriptions though, like if I put in a card and I'm not from, you know, some european country but some of them are pretty strict when it comes to like you know you need to enter in a pin to be able to validate this transaction does your platform handle all that stuff because some banks in the u.s do it as well yeah i haven't you know it's funny i've had one person try to do that and mention it and that was the only time that it has come up i think most people just use the standard format was it like 3d verify there's a couple other ones too 3d verify might be one and then the other one actually the other one i get a lot is um PayPal. People really want to use PayPal in other countries. And unfortunately, because of the fact that I have like all this information stored in Stripe, it's really hard to get another payment provider, which is great for Stripe, kind of bad for me in a way. Yeah. Like switching over to a payment provider would be really tough at this point. PayPal obviously being the biggest one that people keep asking about. Yeah. So do you just like process those manually somehow or just not do it? I don't do it right now. And I'm like, sorry, I wish I could, you know, support this. Um, for, for better or for worse, they're generally like smallish accounts. So I'm not like losing a lot of sleep about it at night. I mean, it sucks to like say no to somebody, but 
I feel like credit cards are credit cards, debit cards. Those are pretty accessible at this point. And if that's a barrier to entry, then I think there might be bigger problems that come along with it as well. So mm, yeah, I don't know. I kind of like lump those two concerns together, unfortunately, but it's kind of a signal in my book that like, Hey, it's probably not going to be a great fit long run anyways. Yeah, that makes sense. Like, I don't know how everyone else like uses PayPal and credit cards, but for me, if I'm signing up for like an actual service, I'm going to be paying for monthly, always the credit card. But, you know, if I'm buying like a game on Steam or just some one-off transaction somewhere, sometimes most likely I'll probably just use PayPal for that. Yeah, that's exactly the same way I do it too. And like, I mean, most credit card companies now like let you spin off, you know, new credit card numbers for particular providers. So like, I don't know, seems really, really easy to me, you know, but again, there's probably a whole bunch I'm taking as like a bias for that. So, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about like the infrastructure side and deployment because we have so much good ground to cover here. Uh, you mentioned you are using DigitalOcean. Do you want to go into your thought process for choosing them? Yeah, I mean, DigitalOcean and I go way back in the days, you know, like they had like the big draw to me to them was like they had a lot of awesome like DIY documents for like, here's how you run Nginx in production or here's how you stand up a Redis instance. And, you know, through the years, I've tried different things that failed, obviously. And, you know, using DigitalOcean as like your VPS infrastructure provider, like it's really easy to like run a $5 droplet for a couple months to see if, you know, something's got traction or not. And if it doesn't, you just tear it down and kind of move on. So it's like pretty low cost to like tease out ideas and see if they work or if they don't. And the fact that they're very like giving of information and helping people get started and they have a really good community around them. Just like all of those things aside, that was kind of what like brought me on to, to using them as a platform. Is like, I just, they just had a lot of good rapport with me over the years. So that was the biggest one. And, you know, there's a bunch of like privacy concerns and otherwise, and issues with other providers too, like AWS and GCP and like, I can't remember if it was like a year ago or something like GCP was talking about. If, if it was even like an April Fool's Day, like, eh, we're going to we're gonna stop doing GCP. We didn't get enough traction. End of story. And it's like, ah, GC, like DigitalOcean's been around for a long time. I feel pretty good about it. Like their uptime is really good. And like anytime something does happen, like I can get a hold of somebody really quickly. I'm probably a really big account for them, you know, or a relatively big account for them now. But yeah, I just, I think just, you know, good faith. Like I've liked them a lot. They've been nice. Their product people are great. Um, They've been nice to me and kind to me. So like, I'd rather give them my money than, you know, another big provider. Yeah. It's funny. Like literally everything you said, like I a hundred percent agree. Like I'm a huge fan of Dio as well. Like they're not even like a sponsor of the show or anything. I've just been using them for years and really cool. It's funny too. Like you say that, you know, you're probably a big account on their platform. So you have access to some of their staff or maybe, you know, inside contact. But even if you're just a lowly peasant like me who has a couple (laughs) of servers on there, it's like if I ask a question and open a ticket, usually getting a response like same day and it's like useful information, not just like, oh, go read our docs. Right. Yeah. The people are really kind. That was actually one thing that struck me is like, you know, even in times of peril, you know, maybe you're a little upset because, you know, like API isn't working someplace or whatever. They're always nice. <laughs> they are, they almost kill you with kindness. And that really goes a long way. You know, I feel like, you know, when things aren't going well, you know, I, I try to like reciprocate that to, to you know browserless users like obviously maybe something isn't working right it wasn't what you thought you were like being kind is how you like win fans and not just users and so um yeah DigitalOcean does that really good so that's pretty much the reason that i went with them yeah for sure so when it comes to this do setup like roughly how many servers do you run and is it through what are their managed services or is this like straight up vps all the way around 
it's pretty much VPS all the way around. Eventually I will get onto their Kubernetes setup for the usage base because all of that is kind of manual on my end. There's some automation that happens, but I mean, I just honestly use the REST API. So somebody signs up, great. Like I make a call to the REST API, get up the VP, you know, VPN or not VPNs, VMs, get all my software pulled onto it and run it, you know, and then and then I'm done. So it's it's really, really quite boring. Like there's not a lot of like really fun, fancy things that go on with it. And then I, you know, I use their firewalls. Obviously there's, you know, floating IPs. Floating IPs are actually pretty awesome because, you know, going back to the database side of things, like if you need to do a major upgrade or you need to bring on a new load balancer, everything in my infrastructure that's like very pivotal has a floating IP attached to it. So I can easily set up something behind the scenes in its place. And then when it's ready to go, you know, just flip a floating IP and it routes it to the new machine. And if, you know, for whatever reason, it's not working right, or somebody's having a problem, I can easily flip it back to the old machine and like keep the ship sailing without a lot of issues. So yeah, floating IPs for the win for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. It's such like such a useful feature because you don't have to play the waiting game for DNS for two days or, you know, even a couple hours, you just flip it and you're done. Yeah. The DNS thing is like, shoot, I haven't even touched the RDNS stuff in a long, long time. So very, very grateful for floating IPs. So do you have all the DNS hosting done at DO side as well? No, I thought about bringing that on. And then there was something early on that I was having trouble with or something. That's all done through Namecheap. Um, and that similar to DigitalOcean was, you know, somebody I had used for a long, long time and had launched various products and projects on that, that, you know, failed or didn't, but it was a really easy, you know, low cost way to get, uh, you know, domain name. And it's really easy to just like flip it over to, you know, obviously forward traffic where it needed to go. Right. And by the way, on the DO side there, uh, when it comes to hosting or serving back those images or PDFs or whatever, you know, people are getting out of the browser, do you have that all going through DO spaces or no? No, that's all like real time dynamic. That's kind of the nice thing about how the product works is like, it's almost like a pass through product. So like if you're doing a PDF at the end of the day, like you get that buffer or that base 64 string or, you know, however you want to stomach that back into your code. So it's kind of like, on you to decide how to do you know use that or do that and we have like a couple sdks in our function apis so like you know you could put it on an s3 bucket if you want it or put it on gcp or you know whatever so it's really easy for them to put it where they need it but i don't store it anywhere and it actually helps a lot for cases like gdpr where it's like you know having that information even just temporarily is like kind of scary and you have to have a lot of process and legal around that to make it function properly it, it like punts that whole problem away from me like you know like we don't record any of that none of it gets saved even the logs on those machines are very minimal like it's just around like session management like did things start properly is your cpu and memory you know being used adequately and so yeah the answer is no <laughs> it's a very yeah. boring do <laughs> setup no it's very good to hear right the, like even besides legalities around GDPR and all that stuff, just not having to deal with writing like a burst of 20 million images out to disk or to S3 or DO spaces. Awesome problem not to have. Yeah, exactly. Like it's probably something I could offer and, you know, obviously make some, make some money off of it. I would, I would guess, but yeah, I just, that's multi-tenant, right? And like I, that word is just an alarm bell in my head. Like I never hear multi-tenancy. It's like, ah, then you, you gotta be like, double, triple, quadruple sure that nothing bleeds or crosses over because you're going to have huge repercussions if that comes to bear. Oh, yeah. So on this DO setup here, uh, what distro did you choose? 
Um, I think all of them run Ubuntu 20, I think I'm on at this point. Um, but that it almost doesn't matter, right? Because if you're in a container, I mean, obviously, whatever is running the container makes a little bit of difference. But like the whole promise of containers being, well, contained, it doesn't really matter where they run as long as, you know, it can support what Docker needs to run. So, um, but most of them are, yeah, just like a Ubuntu 20 machine. Right. 2004, like the latest LTS or whatever. Yeah, exactly. So for these machines then running Docker, do you happen to know what version of Docker you run? And if not, like, do you just go in there from time to time to upgrade to the latest one? Or you just like stick with whatever was on there when you spun it up? I try not to mess with people's deployments so much just because any little change, even if it's just the base OS that gets changed, can cause really weird side effects, especially with headless Chrome. Even when it's in Docker, like, what was it? Like, there was like an overlay problem I had way back in the day, like, Docker has like an overlay support or overlay engine. And I can't even remember why now that was causing problems, but that was causing problems at one point. And it was like not supported in one distro, but it wasn't another. And so like switch those over anyways, the shorts, you know, that's a long story. The short story is like it, anytime you touch somebody's, you know, for dedicated accounts, anytime you touch somebody's instance, it like can cause, you know, really big repercussions. So like I always, you know, in our account page have it so like it's really easy for you to like flush out those old machines start up new ones so if you're worried about that or if you heard that you know ubuntu ubuntu 20 has this really bad and like remote code vulnerability and like you should update right away above all like it's like you go into the account page and you push a button and then you're done assuming that obviously DigitalOcean has that os available but um yeah i try not to like be the man in the middle so much I like want to let things flow naturally and if people want to update um, they're free to do so, but I try not to do it. I've only had to do it a couple of times. I go through and patch something. So yeah, the answer is <laughs> no, I try not to. Okay. So for the instances themselves, like, like how many do you run roughly? If you know, like probably not the exact number cause it changes all the time, but like, are we dealing with thousands of servers here? Oh yeah. It's, it's pretty close to the thousands at this point. I think it's just under a thousand. So, um, yeah, it's kind of a scary big number, but again, most of it's multi instance, right? Like so like if you were to sign up, you own those instances. And if you have a problem with those instances, it's like isolated to just your account for better or for worse. So it's really easy for, you know, maybe you to get in a bad spot, but it's also easy for you to get out and not affect others around you. So yeah, it's probably, it's not probably, it definitely is like over-provisioned, I would say at this point. But again, there's like a whole lot of benefits that sort of come come with that for our use case. Right. And for those account specific boxes, do you set them all up to be the same specs, like whatever two CPU cores, four gigs of RAM, like whatever the specs are. Yep. Yep. Definitely. They're all the same. And anytime you, you know, want to flush them or relaunch them, they're all going to, you know, the ones that you had are going to be wiped and new ones are going to be brought online, same size or whatever. Getting that right in Stripe was a little tricky because you like how I have it like orchestrated in Stripe is, you know, like those size machines have a product and you can have multiple products of those in a subscription. So it's like a quantity thing. So if somebody signs up and they want like want 20, you know, two CPU, four gigabyte machines, like there's a product in Stripe that's, you know, two CPU, four gigabytes, and they're going to have 20 of them in their subscription. And so our APIs just essentially read that and know exactly how to provision it. Interesting. So it's almost like, I don't know, like a product variant, like a t-shirt that has multiple sizes or colors or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's, that's a good way of thinking of it. So a couple of seconds ago, you mentioned uh, orchestration. So when it comes to setting up all of these like hundreds and hundreds of servers, do you use any type of like configuration management tools to set this up like Ansible or something else? 
I've gone back and forth on that actually quite a bit. The answer is no, I don't at this point. It's just really simple API calls. And then again, our, our API instance will essentially just shell onto that machine, pull the image, run it with all of like the configuration details that make it what it is in our platform. And then they just exit and then it, it runs off on its own. Kubernetes is a big one that I think that we might switch over to for usage-based on you know DigitalOcean again, just because it would be nice to have like an auto-scaler kind of kick on and off because it, it does fluctuate from time to time. Like obviously traffic doesn't always go through evenly. So like you can't size something perfectly for it and keep it running long-term. Like it has to kind of like closely follow your traffic patterns. Um, and apparently like their Kubernetes offering does that. Um, and it's just a matter of like me <laughs> investing my time into it, making sure it works, making sure it's secure nothing bleeds over, et cetera, et cetera. And then, you know, going forward with that. Docker Compose is one that I use locally a little bit and is one that I might start using for some of those just because like it might be a good scenario like if you lease one big machine and then run a bunch of containers on it and just size them down a little bit so they're not using all of the CPU and all of the memory and it might make the management aspect of our infrastructure a lot easier so there's not you know thousands it's maybe like in the terms of hundreds as opposed to that you know massive number. Yeah because you can constrain that container for memory and CPU. Yep. The only problem I've had with it is even like locally testing it sometimes like Chrome is just bananas on how it sees CPU. Like even when it's in a container, like, and you have a limit of, I'm only going to give you one quarter run, like Chrome sometimes can reach out and somehow find more CPU time. So I've been a little leery just because of that. So I don't know. I need to do some more research, especially with, you know, something like black box, like Chromium, like you have to spend your time delving into their code and learning their code so you know what it's doing and how it's doing it so you can handle it appropriately in production. Right. Now, maybe now we can talk a little bit about uh, your deployment process. So what does it look like for you to develop something, you know, on your dev box and, and make its way up into production? I don't know if you want to give a couple of examples for each of your services. Yeah. So the biggest one for, you know, user-specific accounts, they run Docker containers and our public Docker registry, you know, has different versions of our product, like the, the service itself, as well as different versions of Puppeteer, because you know people want, I want Puppeteer at this you know version or whatever. So when it builds, we essentially push it to a, another DigitalOcean box. That DigitalOcean box, since it's you know, in the cloud, quote unquote, has really fast throughput. So it can download all of those assets really quickly and it can push them up really fast too. So that's kind of a home rolled system. It's actually, even in our, our Chrome repository. So you can actually look at how that does it. But essentially it goes through all of the release versions of Puppeteer that we support and builds major, minor, and patch versions for each version of Puppeteer. And then it pushes those all up to the public registry. <laughs> so I think we support the last five major versions of Puppeteer. And then there's the three flavors, right? You have the major version of so it's like one dash puppeteer dash 5.2.x and then we do a patch version which is like 1.1. puppeteer 5.2.x and then there's a then there's a patch version which is like 1.1.1 dash puppeteer 5.2.x you can see where this is going there's like 15 at least production tags that need to happen on any time a new build happens and this is just in our core engine so i usually try to limit the number of times that gets deployed and try to do it like early in the week on a Monday when there's people around that can, you know, try things out or try it on their accounts and make sure everything works because it's a big, it's a big push to make. Obviously, since 
it doesn't automatically update on everybody's accounts you know it's 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 also kind of a nice way to vet new new builds i usually will try to push it on our demo box let it run for a couple of days and see how it responds and if it you know if things are looking good there's no memory leaks etc then we can um go with it from there so that's the the core engine <laughs> that's the biggest you know the one that's kind of like the most unwieldy the rest of them are really just like git pushes so for like our api servers there's a production you know git remote that i can push to again this is all under a firewall you know so i'll push to those those api servers will see you know like there's a, a git push happening and they rebuild those docker containers and that uses a technology called docku or d-o-k-k-u um mm -hmm. and that sort of handles the like live deploy live update of those services and that that one actually doesn't need to change so much i'll do like dependency updates and a couple features here and there and it's really easy to push and if something doesn't work you just you know get revert back in time push that and then they rebuild and they're back to where they were so that's a pretty you know easy small thing to change and then for the, sorry. Sorry to interrupt, but before we go into the next one, so when it came to picking Daku or however you want to pronounce that one, uh, what made you go that route instead of just using something like, I don't know, like a post receive hook on a bare Git repo that you push to? I think because they did a lot of the, again, with the like Nginx side of things, like there's like that live deploy time, right? And so Docu takes care of that. Like they, they're essentially just like sugar on top of Docker Compose. There's an Nginx thing that handles inbound requests and routes it to the right container. Um, and then when you do a push, it builds it. If it builds successfully, then it, you know, flips traffic in Nginx to point to that new instance, but it still keeps the old instance around for a period of a few minutes and then it lets it go. That was one of the, one of the like one click installs that DigitalOcean had for like, I don't know, zero downtime Docker deployments. Um, and again, this was like years ago. So probably is like technical debt at this point for me, but at the same time, you know, it, it just worked and it provided a lot of like things I didn't have to build right out of the gate. Yeah, that makes sense. And I mean, yeah, if you're using something like Docker Compose, getting a zero downtime deploy on one server is not the easiest thing to pull off. Right, yeah. And especially if it's like Nginx. So yeah, that's the last one actually to talk about is Nginx because Nginx is like, you know, I'll write something, some like new route or whatever in Nginx for a load balancer. I obviously will test the heck out of that locally, run it locally. There's also a hidden firewalled like dev domain with HTTPS running, I'll push it to that one, make sure everything still works. And that one gets a copy of like production configuration and everything. So that's like, quote unquote, the sand developer environment. And then once that, you know, passes muster, then I can push it to those other uh, other load balancers. Once those get pushed up, I actually manually go to each box. There's like a, a little CLI that I have embedded in those repos that takes care of like, do an Nginx, you know, reload, brings back up the node, little sidecar, and then, you know, I kind of just sit there and watch it for a few minutes to make sure nothing bad happens. But that's another early Monday deploy, you know, make sure there's bodies around to handle something bad that happens. Um, yeah. Another pro tip, just don't, don't ever deploy on Friday, especially Friday night. Right. Bad, bad thing to do. That's really cool to see though. It's like, here you are, you have this really successful SaaS app and it's like, you don't have this crazy elaborate CI CD system. It's just like, well, I just go into the server and run like a CI script manually, sort of, and it just works. Yeah. I mean, I, I've thought about building UIs to, to do all this, but the problem with UIs is like inevitably they mask over some complexity, right? Like they simplify things to a certain point, which is great for, you know, 90% of the time. But 
you know, if somebody signs up for the service and they're like, hey, this is working great. I want to try like 20. I want to I want to try out this big plan. Can we do that pretty quickly? And like, you betcha, like I have a CLI that will behind the scenes redo your whole deployment thing and you don't have to do do anything. I just punch in a command and like it takes care of everything to, to make that happen. So, yeah, essentially there's like one big CLI repository that I have that just like automates a lot of like the chory stuff that you have to do when, you know, you get people that want to like demo stuff out a little bit. Now, is that CLI a node app that you wrote or is it bash or something else? Oh, it's a, it's definitely, <laughs> it's definitely a node app. It's a tight script, TypeScript app even. Uh, it's super slick, man. Like that's like one thing I want to sort of open source just like as a good faith thing, but uh, there's a lot I need to clean up in it. But yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty cool because you can say like, Hey, I want to launch 30, you know, two CPU, four gigabyte machines. And I want them to run this image and Docker. And like, it takes care of all of that for you. It even goes so far as to like update, you know, the load balancers to make sure that they're aware of that change. And so that all just kind of like happens automatically. Nice. Yeah. Isn't it funny how open source works? It's like, I've had so many little projects where like the prototype that works for me was 15 minutes, but to make it like an actual open source repo, put it on GitHub, get CI set up, get the readme going, clean up the code. It's like suddenly that's like an entire full day. Right. Because you got to get all the badges and the GitHub actions on it and you got to post it on Twitter and Reddit and you know, get mm-hmm. people involved and hopefully get stars for it. And then given all of that, if that's successful, then you have to worry about people like saying like, well, hey, I'm using it on CentOS version two. Can we make this work for that? And it's like, well, <laughs> I don't use CentOS two. Nobody does. Like, I don't want to spend my time, you know, making it work for everyone under the sun. So, yeah, I mean, that's like one of the big, big questions that it's really hard to answer sometimes is like, well, do you build it or do you buy it or, you know, use it some other thing of it? And I try to as much as I can now since I have the you know capacity to to just like buy stuff off the shelf that works because I you know don't want to spend all my time maintaining tools and stuff. But every now and then you know you need something very focused on what you're trying to achieve and like very for your use case. So yeah, for me that's like a a big CLI that just kind of does a lot of like orchestration within our platform. Right now, speaking about like open source, are there are there any components of your setup that is open source? Yeah, so it's. I should be careful here. It is open source. It's like open code. Essentially, it's dual license. The actual core engine that runs for, you know, dedicated accounts and for even our usage-based accounts um, is is like all open code. It's on GitHub. You can look at it. Even, even to pull it off of Docker is, you know, free. You can pull it, run it, you know, use it, check it out, whatever. Um, but it's like copyleft licensing. So, you know, if you use it in a product that you sell or, you know, make money off of, then... You got you to gotta buy a license to obviously use it for that. But if you're just using it for your own, you know, tinkering or whatever, or if you're using it for an open source project, like it's, hey, man, like totally hear you. Just run with it and use it. So I'm sure like people definitely abuse that <laughs> to, a, to a certain degree and just, you know, probably use it for, you know, money making purposes, let's say. But at the same time, it's free to use and I don't have to pay for marketing, you know, to, to get the word out and developers can come and use it. And if they love it and they, they enjoy it, then they can sign up for an account. So it kind of, you know backfills that marketing budget for me that people can kind of just come and use it and see if they even like it or not. Right. So I don't want to like cut away business from your SaaS app component, but like if someone just wanted to, you know, put that image on their own DigitalOcean box that they set up, they totally can do that and basically get everything that they would normally get, except that they need to manage all that instead of you. Yep. That's uh, yeah, that's pretty much uh, the truth. Um, 
I mean, like I should say like the core aspects will work, right? Like the, the machine will start up, you can run sessions through it, but like the scaling part is tough, right? Like you still have to manage scaling somehow. You still have to manage HTTPS somehow, and you still need to like respond to health checks somehow. So the nice thing is it's like a very isolated Docker image and it has, you know, parameters for setting like webhooks. In our cloud, when, you know, something bad is happening, it fires a webhook off to our API server and our API server, you know, handles it. It'll either, you know, send you an email saying like, hey, something bad's happening on your box. You should probably go check it out or it tries to fix the problem for you. So there's a lot of like other stuff around it, right? Like if you sell a car, it has an engine, somebody could take that engine and, you know, conceivably build another car around it, right? But like most people just want to buy a car and, and, and drive it and get use out of it and not try to contort that into their own desires. So that's kind of the way I have it like modeled in my head. This, you know, really bad metaphor, but here's the engine of the car. Here's how it all works. So you can see it and you can kind of like check it out and like, oh yeah, it does run on gas. And oh, sure it does. It pushes a car forward. That's great. But if you actually want to get like the whole, like I need to drive a car experience, then obviously go to the hosted platform and, you know, usage base is like 10 bucks. So it's, it's pretty like, it's not, you know, trivial for everyone, but for most people, I think $10 is a pretty small amount to like trial something out. And if it doesn't work out, just let me know and I'll refund you. Right. Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of projects like this that are very successful, right? Like the discourse forum, mm. you can totally self-host it yourself and get it all set up, or you can just pay them some money and they deal with everything and you get a forum. Right. Exactly. And like Sidekick was one of those projects that like I took a lot of inspiration from and it's kind of the same thing with that. Like there's a, a Ruby gem for Sidekick and you can get up and running with it and get familiar with it. But if you want to like have a better experience, there's other ways to go about that and, you know, pay for the product and have a better time. So, and I kind of like that model, you know, like as somebody that's been advertised to their whole life, I just hate to pay for ads or marketing or any of that. You know, I I'd just rather like be more like open and honest with people. Like this is how it works. So you can see it, you can play with it and then decide if you like it or not. Yeah. I think it's really cool. Like I don't want to get too off topic on this one, but just having an open source variant that someone can run can just mean that someone can use that, like it, blog posts about that, make videos about that, tell their friends about it. You know, just having people using your product seems like a really great way to do marketing without trying to like shove ads down someone's face. Right. And I think, especially for like developer focused companies, advertising is almost harmful, I would say. Anytime I get like ads for something overly so, like it's like, well, guess what? I guess what? I'm never going to buy because I'm so sick of seeing it. <laughs> so it has like a reverse psychology component to it. And uh, at a certain point, obviously, it makes sense. Like, if you're selling to millions and millions of people, like, you need to keep getting the word out to to more and more folks, obviously, to get it. And that's kind of the only way to do it. But, you know, we're browserless itself is still kind of relatively small compared to, obviously, big tech behemoths. So this is just a more, like, fiscal sound way of doing it, in my opinion. Right. So before you mentioned uh, something about health checks, so maybe now we can talk a little bit about you know, how you plan for disaster or unexpected events. You know, you mentioned that you do have the Redis database being backed up in multiple places every five minutes, was it, I think? Uh, do you have anything set up on DO side for just alarms and alerting? Like, hey, this machine is at, you know, 90% CPU for five minutes, and then, like, you get a Slack message or an email or something like that? Yeah, so there's two flavors of that I actually have. Every box has its own, like, for a dedicated account, even usage-based, every, every machine has its own, like, embedded health check it does and so if it runs over like 100 percent for five minutes it'll you know fire off a webhook to our api servers our api servers will email that user and say hey like your worker is having a really hard time you might you know consider upgrading or you know doing something because you're gonna have a bad time here pretty quick 
So that's like the first flavor. The second flavor is if somebody pays for like a premium support package, I actually have a personal monitor that I put on their instances. Anytime something bad is happening, it sends me a text message. And so I can easily, you know, go look at it myself or, you know, somebody else could. Um, so that's kind of the second flavor of health checks we do. And then Nginx and some of the other bigger components, we have like third party systems that do checks and scans on those. Uh, Nginx has like an Amplify SaaS product and that does a lot of monitoring for all of our load balancers. So if like one of those machines is not responding or overutilized, it'll send me an email saying like, Hey, this load balancer is, you know, running at 90 cent, 90% CPU. So that's how those get, get lifted up to my, you know, visibility. But thankfully again, like, you know, we had that instance where we like 10 X our traffic or something crazy overnight. And they just, they just handled it fine. I, I didn't even get a notice about it until I just, you know, looked at stats for the day. And I was like, oh my gosh, what the heck happened? We just had like a tenfold increase in traffic. Yeah. So let me, let me interrupt you on that one, because how the heck did that work out? Like, how did you just manage to serve that much traffic without anything blowing up? Well, the nice thing is, is that like, there's like, it, it, back to layers, like everything has a layer to it. So Nginx has like a request, you know, limit. So like you can only have, you know, for at least usage based, you can only have up to 200 concurrent requests and then it just starts rejecting your request right away. So that's like the first layer. If those requests go through and they go through to like a, a worker of ours that is trying to run that request, once those come through, we do a health check on that box before it even answers that socket. And if it's like 99% capacity or whatever, those will reject it. So there's like two layers, I would say that, you know, sort of mitigate having problems and so when you get something like a big burst of 10 million requests or something crazy you know most of those are probably going to be you know rejections but in this case like we just happen to have a lot of infrastructure available for it was a usage-based user that like just floored us with requests and they just proxied them all nginx is just a simple proxy for us and so you know aside from the little lua scripts that it runs but they just proxied the right boxes and we just had a lot of boxes so I mean, the really simple answer is, you know, we just, we, we had enough machines to, to handle everything. So very good to hear. And by the way, when things do go wrong, do you have anything like Sentry hooked up, like for getting exception handling, uh, stack traces into you or no? Yeah. So I don't have Sentry yet hooked up. That's one that I'm probably going to be looking at pretty closely here pretty soon for our API servers. Um, and then right now it's, it's all just like text messages. So like if somebody signs up, this is like really getting double use out of everything that you pay for is good. So if somebody signs up and for something, some reason, something just breaks right when they start, you know, to use the service, like it'll send me a text message that, you know, like an error has happened. And since our API servers are all GraphQL, you know, resolvers, we just have like an async resolver wrapped around those. Anytime one of those functions throws or fails, it'll go through to like a like a little utility handler that sees that. And if it's a, the appropriate type of error, it'll actually just send me a text message with the error details. So have you ever gotten woken up like in the middle of the night where like 786 (laughs) text messages came to you? Oh man. So yeah, that's actually a fun story. I was on my 10th wedding anniversary in like Bora Bora of all places. And yeah, like the usage base, this is this is a fun answer to it, but the usage based service was having a heck of a time. It was just like 500 everybody that was sending a request. And like, I woke up, you know, 
can't remember what time it was there or even what time it was here, but it was early. I remember waking up and like my phone was just this endless sea of issues and people and emails and Twitter and all these other like, you know, like what's wrong, what's going on. So we're not getting responses back. And so for those, that was a pretty like tough one. Cause I, you know, obviously you have a fire, your house is burning down, but you got to get people out and you got to let people know what the heck's going on. So like, that was the first thing was like, start getting my stuff set up to start debugging what the heck's happening, but also like responding back to people right away. A lot of them I was able to just convert to a dedicated account and say like, Hey, I don't know what's going on. I'm going to upgrade you to a dedicated account so you can keep running and it's no charge. I'll just, you know, we'll get you, we'll get you back up and running. So, you know, did that for a lot of them. And again, I have a CLI to do a lot of that. So I just fire a bunch of, you know, CLI functions that essentially take care of all that. And then I can go back to debugging what the actual problem is. And turns out in Node, if you reject a socket a certain way, Nginx sees that as a failure and it'll mark that instance as unhealthy. But that's not the case for us. Like we just, you know, that user may have had too many requests and that worker was saying, you know, nope, you've at your, at your limit, we're, we're going to reject the socket. And so you have to reject your socket in a very specific way for Nginx to not mark your instance as unhealthy. So that was the, the big reveal on that one. But yeah, I think that's, let's see, that was June, 2019. I haven't really had anything major since then. Obviously the early days were just perilous. Once we like launched a UK based data center, you know, instance, like I was getting up at two or three in the morning, but I had young kids at the time too. So I was up anyways, most of the time. So it was, you know, go feed a baby and then go punch in a command and go back to bed. (laughs) (laughs) It was the way I lived for quite a few years, but I don't know. That was just luck. You know, I just, I happened to be at that point in my life where I was already up and I would just check them and go handle it. Or, you know, I'd get a text message or something and then I'd get up, fix the problem. And then I'd hear the baby get up and go help, go help the wife and the child. And I don't know, just roll, 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 roll with the punches. Yeah, that sounds like uh, a really great story and definitely had some lessons learned. And on the topic of that, uh, what would you say some of your best tips and lessons learned are from developing and deploying all of this? I mean, the biggest one I would say, and I hate to sound like a broken record because you hear this other places is like no one to pivot. Um, again, that was like the first thing that I had done right out of the gate was built a product, spent a lot of time building that product. And then just realized that like, some internal tool. I think Slack even had this as their motive too. It was like, you know, they had built something else, but they had built Slack on the side and noticed that like, Hey, this Slack tool thing is pretty cool. We should probably just run with that. Um, definitely had that with browserless. Like it was a cool tool that I was already using internally. So I might, you know, I'm just, I'll make that the product instead. So like being very open <laughs> to ideas and listening to people that are like talking to you about those things are really good. The other one, I think no, this one I haven't heard so much, but like really be able to talk to people that cancel your service, especially like big customers, like as much as that much, you know, might suck to lose somebody to have them churn out, especially if they're a big account, like that point in time is very, very opportunistic. You can have a very honest conversation about why they decided not to use it and get a lot of great information. I think culturally, a lot of people will, you know, just sing your praises, you know, to be amicable, you know, not cause a fuss. Um, but when somebody cancels a service, they're not going to be using you anymore. There's no, like, no reason necessarily for them to maintain a good relationship, but, um, so they can give you really honest and candid feedback. So be looking to turn (laughs) your lemons to lemonade. 
because that has definitely like helped me out a ton and and there's almost an opportunity to do that no matter what so if you're up at you know three in the morning because something broke well you know it broke for a reason try to learn from that maybe add it to your thing or write a blog post about it and you know try to turn that bad situation into something that's actually like usable and like helps other people or at least you know helps you feel better about it and makes it worth it right yeah that is a uh, really good advice and, and when it comes to getting that feedback from people who cancel I mean, I would imagine it's not like an automated email where you're like, dear valued customer, uh, we appreciated your business. But by the way, can you help us like improve that by answering this like 35 question survey that's only going to take you 15 minutes? Right. No, I mean, I there's like a you know big texter that says like any of the comments or whatever. But I lo- almost always will reach out and say, hey, I'm Joel. You know, this is the, the thing that I had wrote. Uh, you know, so I use the service. Hope you got some value out of it. But curious to hear your thoughts since, you know you're done at this time using it and just want to kind of pick your brain a little bit if you're open to that. And and most people are actually surprisingly like if it's something that they didn't like about it, like it's like therapeutic for them to talk to somebody about it. And if it's the owner of the company, you know, like who better to go to. Um, and since I'm, you know, on both sides of it, like I hear people's problems with it, but I also use it internally. It's it's I'm the guy to talk to because I will take your feedback and I will implement it myself. And it's, you know, the right person is getting what, what they need to hear to make the product better. So, um, and since it's not automated, I think it's a lot more honest and genuine, you know? Yeah, for sure. I think that's also a great point where it's like, you are the, not just the CEO, but the developer. So yeah, I mean, it doesn't feel like it's wasted effort just talking to someone who will maybe just mishandle the data or not really get the story straight, or it has to go through like a chain of seven people before it reaches a developer. Yeah. I mean that there's a lot that gets lost in communication. Big companies have that problem. I think really easily like they'll talk to a product manager they'll go to a project manager or whatever and then it goes to the developers and then you know you get that cartoon or whatever it's like what the customer wanted what the product guy saw what the developer built or whatever yeah but if you talk to the guy that's going to build it like i mean it's great because you know mechanically i know how it works and i know what's possible but at the same time like hearing what you think after having used it is really valuable for me too because i get obviously caught up in the details of how the whole thing clicks and works together but um having outside perspective is so 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 valuable Yep, for sure. So Joel, thanks a lot for coming on the Running in Production podcast. It was really great having you on. Yeah, thanks so much for having and talking. And yeah, was, yeah, we covered a lot of ground, so I'm glad we did it. Yeah, we sure did. But before we wrap this up, do you want to share any links to your site, Twitter, GitHub profile, anything like that? Yeah, so I'm on GitHub, just my first and last name, Joel, J-O-E-L Griffith. Um, obviously, browserless.io is our, is our main site. We have a doc site as well, docs.browserless.io that has a blog. Um, I'm not on Twitter yet, but obviously we have a Twitter account because that's just how anybody does business these days. So um, just at Browserless and you'll see us there. Cool. And on that note, to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in and I'll see you in the next one. You've been listening to the Running In Production podcast. You can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.